Every person longs for eternal life in some sense. Even the person who denies it would say, I wish it were so, but I want to live according to reality. And then you have any number of folks, right, Christians, non-Christians, other religions, who would give any number of answers to what it takes to have eternal life. But here's a question I want to ask you this morning. If God would tell you right now in this place, this morning, exactly what it took to have eternal life, would you listen to him? Because that's exactly what Jesus does here, and it's exactly what he's going to do today, right here, right now, by his word and spirit. Exactly what it takes to have eternal life. So let's look at our text together this morning. But before we do, I want to say, even if you're a person here who's a believer, who'd say, yeah, I I understand the gospel, I get it, I believe, I want to know Jesus and follow him, this is for you too. Because getting this right, getting what it means to have eternal life right, makes all the difference in the world in how you live your life as a Christian. Do you have lifeless, joyless obedience? Has your joy gone? I think it's because we need to return to this central message of the grace of God, the beauty of what Christ has done to give us life. So let's look at our text. First, eternal life comes through brokenness. Eternal life comes through brokenness. I'm going to read. Look at verse 17. Um, I'm going to read along and along as we go through this text. And as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus is going on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's a ministry opportunity if you've ever seen one. A guy comes down, he gets on his knees and says, Jesus, what can I do to have eternal life? And then Jesus responds by asking him a question that seems totally unrelated. Seems beside the point. Why do you call me good? To which most of us say, Jesus, who cares? Just tell the guy how he can have eternal life. But he does it because the answer to this question is the answer to the man's question. Jesus knows. He knows, like a master surgeon, you got a wound in order to heal. A person who comes in and have all kinds of heart blockages, they've got to have open heart surgery. Their eyes have to be, I mean, their heart's got to be open. They've got to be cut open. It's going to wound them. It's going to hurt. But they've got to hurt in order to heal. It's the same with Jesus. He knows what's going on in this man's life. And he's got to expose that before he can give him the medicine. So let's read on. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said, I've kept all these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So this guy walks up to Jesus. He gets on his knees. He says, How can I have eternal life? Jesus asks him the question. This guy expects Jesus to give him a high five. Yes, I'm doing great. Great job. You're doing good. Keep it up, and you're in. But that's not what he does. His expectations are wrong. This is extravagant language. Okay? This was not a way that people would address a rabbi or a teacher in the ancient world. Okay? This is extravagant language that the guy comes up. 
and speaks to Jesus. And then he calls him on it, right? That's what he does. He says, why do you call me good? Are you posturing because you want the high five from men? Or do you really think that I'm God? Because if you think that I'm God, then you're on the right track. Because I'm the only one who can save you. I'm the only one who can give you life. Jesus calls him on what's going on here. He says, no one is good except God alone. He takes language that this guy probably used to posture in front of Jesus to say, do you really get this? I am God. And I am good. And in that moment, the rich young ruler should see that I'm not. God alone is good. It's true. He's pure. And the rich young ruler is not, and neither are we. But it seems when Jesus recounts the, the commandments, is we believe we're saved by grace. Right? We'll get to that in a minute. Is he equivocating here? Is he saying, you know what, if you just do these good things, you'll live? No, I think Jesus here is, is playing what we would call a devil's advocate, right? The Old Testament is clear. If you keep the law, you'll live. If you can keep the law, you will have life. So he recounts these commandments to the rich young ruler. And he says, yeah, I've kept all these from my youth. Kept them all. And at this point, I, I don't think he's, he's not lying about it. I think the rich young ruler is just like, hey... Honestly, I I think I've done this. In the same way that the young Paul said. You remember in Philippians where he says, As to righteousness under the law, faultless. Before the gospel comes into his life, before he sees the reality of who Christ is and what he's done, he thinks he's done a pretty good job. But then he sees that Jesus is the Son of God. He sees the depth of the law. And it breaks him to the core. And he comes back and he says... I once was alive apart from the law. But then the commandment came and I died. The rich young ruler is not there yet. He has to see the depth of the law. He's got a shallow understanding that can only be replaced by the gospel. But I think it's also very significant here that Jesus... This is powerful. This is so important. He doesn't dismiss the guy. He doesn't just say, hey, you're, you're an idiot, man. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't dismiss him out of hand. He doesn't, his answer to him is not arrogant. It says that Jesus looking at him, he loved him. And then he spoke to him. It's like if, if you've ever said something that's just really stupid, right, in, in front of somebody who really cared about you, about ten minutes later they'll come around, put their arm around you, and then begin to say, you know, I love you, but... That was really stupid. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. The guy thinks he's done it. Right? He thinks he's kept it. And it says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he said, one thing you like. Go give away everything you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. Then he's broken. He says he walks away sad because he has great possessions. You see, this rich young guy, it's clear to everybody in this room and to me and probably everybody reads the story, that the real God that he has is money. It's his stuff. That's what he really bows down to. That's what he really worships. And our true God is the same thing, right? It's whatever we won't give up for Jesus' sake. 
That's what really grabs us. That's really what holds our lives and our hearts. It doesn't matter what it is. But in love, Jesus delivers to him a crushing blow. He says, give away everything you have and follow me. But that's the point, right? The point is that he would be crushed. That he would say he hasn't kept what he said he kept. That he needs Christ to die for him. About four or five years ago when I lived in Orlando, I decided to do some light reading on a Sunday afternoon. And so I decided to read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so, you know, I read it. I, a lot of people, I think, have to read that still for American literature or whatever. Uh, I don't think I had to do it in high school, though. But I decided, you know, I want to read it. And the sermon is fantastic, by the way. And most people read it and they either say, you know what, God's not like that. He's not that holy or that just. Or they say, on the other hand, I'm not that bad. But what's great about the sermon is the entire point is for him to crush you. That's what the whole thing's about. The whole thing is is so that we will be crushed by the reality of God's requirements in our sin. So the only place we'll go is to Christ for eternal life. That's the point, is to utterly turn us all away from saying, hey, if I do this or that or the other, I could be saved. That's the whole point of his sermon. So that we wouldn't trust in ourselves in any way, but rather that we would trust in Christ and look to Him for life. And it's that reality of brokenness. It's this kind of brokenness that allows us to love people. That allows us to suffer long with people. That allows us not to get so frustrated about so-and-so because they just won't do what they're supposed to. And that can happen a lot in uh, youth ministry. Why won't these kids just do what I tell them? Right? But Jesus could say the same thing about me. And he could say the same thing about you as well. So he wants to crush us. And that destroys the arrogance and the pride that we all are so prone to. So eternal life comes through brokenness. Secondly, eternal life comes through repentance. Verse 21. Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and, and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. When people get married, there's a line that's often said. It says, forsaking all others, I'll be faithful to you. So when you go into marriage, you can't say, hey, I just want to be married to like a few people. Right? You say, I love you. And I want to be married to you and nobody else. And I promise to be faithful. I promise to love you and to cherish you and all those things. There's nobody else who can get in on that arrangement. There's nobody else who's supposed to be able to enter into that covenant between a husband and wife. It's monogamous. One to one. Nobody else. The very same thing is true of Jesus. The rich young ruler and we have a choice between two lovers. Jesus and whatever else tempts us to take his place. And the rich young ruler has the same choice here. And it's, it's important to realize that Jesus means what he says here. He means what he says about this guy giving away all that he has. 
and following Christ. There's a commentator named Kent Hughes who says, This is not general advice for every believer, though it was appropriate in this instance. Jesus always demands that those who come to him put away their gods, whether they be possessions, position, power, or person, or passion. In this context, forsaking all others meant giving up all his possessions and following Christ. Okay, conversion always involves two things. True faith, true repentance. Okay, you can't have one without the other. Saving, someone has said saving faith is always penitent. And true repentance is always believing. Okay, you don't have one without the other. When you turn away from sin and you turn to Christ, you're doing both, right? When I turn to Jesus, I'm turning away from whatever was over here that I worshipped and loved and bowed down to. And I'm turning to Christ for life. Both of those things are involved. You, you don't have one without the other. You don't have one without the other. And in this instance, for this man to come to Christ means I give away all that I have and then I come and I follow Jesus. Jesus means what he says. Sometimes um, I think that at least I think, and I'm sure that you do too, that identifying what it is that I worship is enough. And I don't really need to repent of it. That's not what Jesus says here. He says repentance is required. You repent and believe the gospel. And our idols, as I said earlier, are those things that we won't give up for Jesus. They're those things that we look to for happiness. They're those things we look to for life. Now, put yourself in his shoes this morning. How would you respond to that? Whether you have a lot of money or you don't really have much money or you're anywhere in between, if Jesus said, you know, you know what it takes to follow me is to give up everything that you own and come follow me and be my disciple. Man, that, that's challenging. I think we'd all have a hard time with that, right? But if we think about, let's think about it in terms um, the other idols that we could love. Okay, what would repentance look like maybe? If you worship success, maybe you need to take a few days off of work. Pray, spend time with your family. If you worship, uh, maybe you worship your body. Maybe it's working out, it's having the perfect figure. Don't work out for a week. Trust in Christ. Spend that time in prayer. Um, what if it's comfort? What if that's what we love? That's what I love. Okay, this is mine. Do something that's hard, that you don't want to do. Maybe love somebody that's difficult to love. Or go talk about something that you really don't want to talk to them about, but you need to talk to them about. It's real repentance. And that's what Jesus calls us to Eternal life comes through repentance. It comes by being broken. And finally, it comes through the promise. It comes through the promise. Look at verse 27 and following. Excuse me, 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult 
it, will, it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And here's the key to the whole thing. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, why did, were the disciples so amazed? Right? It says it twice. They were amazed and they were exceedingly astonished by what Jesus had said. The reason is they bought into a theology of their day that said, if you're wealthy, that's a sign of God's blessing. Okay? So, if, so the idea that, that wealth could be a hindrance. And Jesus says, seems to indicate here, in his comment on a camel going through the eye of a needle, that wealth almost always is a hindrance. doesn't have to be, right? God can use it. If we use it for Christ's kingdom, it can be part of our spiritual growth. But it seems here that in the main, it's a hindrance to spiritual life. Okay, but that's just a side note. But these guys, they buy into this idea that... If I am wealthy, then I'm blessed by God. If I'm not, then I'm not blessed by God. Okay, so for them, these were the people that God was blessing. Okay, and they believe that if, if I give my money to the poor, I can earn merit. I can earn further rewards that will come back to me later. So here's a young guy who's wealthy, who's interested in the things of God. He cares about the Ten Commandments. He's on his knees before Jesus. I'm sure he would be a very nice, young, upstanding American. Okay, he's, he's great. Relatively, right? And so these guys look at him and they say, Gosh, if this guy can't be saved, how are we going to be saved? If this man, who's blessed by God and has all these things, can't be saved, how can I be saved? And Jesus says, with man it's impossible, not with God. For with God all things are possible. That's what distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other self-help, religion, anything else. There it is in the text. Every other thing says, you know what, if you do this, you will have life. If you keep the eightfold path, if you... Say your prayers. If you give to the poor, you'll be saved. If you don't, you won't be. It's totally based on what you do, what you accomplish, what you can attain. And he says here that eternal life, that because all people have sinned, eternal life is impossible by any human means or human schemes. It's impossible. The immovable standard to get into heaven is perfection. Okay, there's a... Um, many of you know that I like to play golf a lot. And I, there's a test. If you want to be a, a club pro, like if you want to work at a golf course, and you're the professional and you give lessons and all that stuff, you have to pass what's called a player ability test. So you go out, let's say, to the local golf course, and you, you have to shoot a certain score. Um, and if you've never played golf before, 75 is a pretty good score. 100 is not a very good score. Okay? And 
you basically play golf that day. And if you shoot a 75 or under, you're in. If you don't, you're not in. Okay, but if you walk up and say, you know, I shot a 76 today, but I did the best I could. They're going to say, well, great job, but you're still not in. Right? Because you didn't do it. You didn't shoot 75 or lower. You shot 76. And it's the same way. If God's standard is perfection and we've sinned, it doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how good it looks. You're still not going to get in. You still don't have any hope apart from Christ. And that's why we believe Christ is the only way to have life. Because we've all sinned. We've all broken God's law. I was with a guy this past week in West Virginia. He was preaching and, and he was telling me he was considering going to India to work as like a teacher in a, in a school over there. There were missionaries who'd been there for about 25 years. And they would see all these Hindu holy men standing around the city. And there were guys who would like literally hold their hand up in the air for 12 years. They would just do this. Or they'd do that and they'd stand on one foot. For, for years on end. So their hand was just like withered away because they didn't have any blood flow. And, the, and that was some way of being righteous or holy. And we think that's crazy. And it is. Right? But that's where they want to be righteous. So they've got to come up some way to do it. Does anybody really believe that by doing this I can pay for my sin? Does anybody really believe that me doing this is going to pay for the evil thoughts that are going through my head while I'm doing this? And why aren't all these other people doing this while I'm doing that? We cannot atone. We cannot pay. It's the same way with Christians. Maybe you're a believer here today and you think if I share the gospel with enough people or if I give enough money or if I do ministry or whatever it might be, that I'll have eternal life, that I'll be good, that I'll earn something. But that's not the case either. Or, or if you're here today um, and we glad, we're glad you are, if you believe that you don't kind of believe in all this stuff, you would say, you know, I don't, I don't know. But if you look at other people who don't believe in Christ... It's about being a good neighbor or working out or being in shape. Um, I'm amazed at how much on TV, like, being in shape is like, to be fit is to be good and to be good is to be fit. Or you're being a good neighbor or you're, you work hard at work. But none of those things. Jesus says, no matter what your creed is this morning, no matter what you believe, Christ says, apart from me, it's impossible. Not possible. And it's once we see that that we're ready to hear the good news. It's once this rich young ruler sees that that's where he is. It's once we see that that we're ready to hear the good news. This guy walks away. Sorrowful and he walks away because he has many, many things. Instead of coming to Christ. But when we see that we're completely lost. It doesn't matter how good we think we are or other people think we are. They were ready to see the good news that Christ does for sinners what they can't do for themselves. And the wages of sin is death, but that Jesus pays those wages 
on behalf of those who come to him. And that's the promise of life. There is no way to inherit eternal life apart from him. The only way I can, and this illustration has been used many times, I'm sure, but the only way I can think of to illustrate this is if you're condemned to die, the judge puts you in, in prison, you're sitting there waiting for your sentence to be carried out, and the judge sends his own son on the cover of night, gets you out, goes in the prison, takes your place, and he dies on your behalf. That's what Jesus has done for those who know him. For those who will come to him. is that Jesus takes the punishment that is rightfully yours and mine so that you can have the kingdom that's rightfully his. There's a, there's a great hymn. Love it. It's called, Hallelujah, What a Savior. There's two verses I want to read to you. It says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Eternal life comes to the promise. And as I said earlier, if you're a believer here this morning, if you love Christ, and your relationship with Him is always based on grace. Always. Every moment of every day. I don't care if you've been a believer for five minutes or you've been one for a hundred years. Your relationship with him is always based on grace. And it's when you forget that that you start to get really frustrated with yourself and other people. It's when your joy becomes absent. Remember in Galatians what Paul said? What's happened to all your joy? What's happened? Because they're trying to save themselves by their good works. It's the same with us. When we forget that it's about what Christ has done, that there is free grace, and that grace not only saves us but changes us, and it's the grace that does that. It's when we keep the cross in center view that we realize that there is joy in following Jesus because we will fail. You will sin. You will mess up. But God is at work in the life of the believer through Christ, by His grace. And that's where joy is. That's where hope is. Forgetting that is, is death. It brings death to you and everybody else around you. But as we remember that, we live into that, we can love people, we can serve people, we can pray with joy. Because even if you missed a quiet time for the last year, if you know Jesus and you go to Him today and you say, Lord... Have mercy on me. I'm, I, I, I want to know you. I want to be near to you. He's right there. He's there with you. This past week, and little kids, if you're a kid in this room, I want you to listen up to what I'm about to say. But this past week, I unfortunately wasn't here, but we had VBS, right? So all these kids come in and... Um, I think it's a lot of fun because I just get to sit over there and, like, high-five it around. And kids think it's great. And then I just go back in my office and let these great people who serve in the VBS deal with all the chaos. Um, but I thought, um, if you remember, Mother Teresa 
died about probably five years ago now. And probably anybody that you talk to, if they believe that eternal life was possible, would say, yeah, I think Mother Teresa has eternal life. Definitely. Because she served so many people in India. She gave her life serving the poor. She poured out herself um, in a very poor, broken nation. She did all these good things. Surely she's in heaven. And then you have the little VBS kids who are here. Walking around. They're hearing the gospel. They're singing about anchors away. They're hearing about Jesus. They're hearing about him dying for, for their sins and rising from the dead. Has eternal life. In the very same way that a Mother Teresa would. Why? Because she's not saved by her works. In fact, her works increase her guilt. And that's not being morbid. Okay? Were they good? Was it good stuff that she did? Of course it was. Right? But the Bible says even our righteous deeds are filthy rags. Even the good things that you do, that I do, I see more and more that they're stained with sin, right? And so the more good stuff I do, it's, it's still a cruise guilt to me. Even though by God's grace, he uses them for his glory. So she's saved in the very same way that a four-year-old girl is. By the work of Jesus on her behalf. And it's resting in that Christ. It's not about, as the rich young ruler said, what can I do to have eternal life? Jesus' answer to him is nothing. It's interesting that in every place where this appears in the Gospels, the story immediately preceding it is about the little children coming to him. Why is that? And I close with this. As Kent Hughes, that same commentator, said, it's, be- it's not because children are innocent. They're not. It's because they're helplessly dependent. How does an infant who wants to enjoy being in the pool and enjoying the water who can't swim, how do they enjoy it? They rest in the arms of their father who has the power, the ability to take that child in his arms and to go around the pool and they can enjoy that. It's the same way with us. My challenge to you this morning, if you don't know Christ, is to come to him. He's the one who spreads out his arms and dies for those who rebel against him. And it's by resting in what he's done, turning from whatever you think you're going to do to redeem yourself and to have life. And if you're a believer this morning, remember the gospel. Remember God's grace. Because we're just as helpless as those little kids. And Jesus calls us to rest in the arms of our Father by grace. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your grace. None of us would be here apart from it. And Lord, I pray for each heart here, each mind, that you would open up our eyes to more and more enter in to what you've purchased for us, Jesus. That you'd open our hearts more and more to love you and to serve you because you've died and you've paid it all. And so, Lord, thank you for our time together. Use this word as we walk out of here. Lord, we walk in joy and hope and peace. 
because of what Jesus has done, we can have life. We love you today. We ask these things in your name. Amen.